going to be talking about the age of Jackson, the United States between uh, 1828 and 1840. Now, Washington, D.C. had never quite seen anything like March 4th, 1829, the day Andrew Jackson was inaugurated the seventh president of the United States. Many of his working-class, rough-hewn supporters came to the Capitol to see the inauguration and mobbed Jackson at the White House reception that occurred afterwards. They lined up for hours inside the uh, White House for a chance to shake their great hero's hand. Uh, uh, They broke dishes. They stormed all over the White House grounds. They muddied the carpets. They ripped the wallpaper. They ruined the furniture. They took souvenirs. Estimated about 20,000 people were in the White House or through the White House that day. And their supporters carried on, depending on your perspective, like the common people, politically triumphant at last, or like an unruly, dangerous mob. Now, this scene and the reaction to this scene encapsulates the years 1828 to 1840, which are known as the Age of Jackson. The age of Jackson was, above all, a democratic age in which the average man, average citizen, had more influence over politics and culture and economics and society in general than at any other previous time. But saying this begs the question, who was the average man? Was he the man who spilled cider all over the White House carpet? during uh, Andrew Jackson's inauguration day at the White House, the reception, or the man who read about it in the newspaper and was revolted by what he read? It's a tricky question because you can't answer it only in terms of class. You might think that the man who spilled cider all over the White House carpet was poor and that the newspaper reader reading it and being revolted by it was rich. But, likely as not, both earned about the same amount of money. Both were average Americans. Both were the common man. And it's possible that the cider-spilling Andrew Jackson supporter in the White House might have even had more money than the newspaper reader. He did have the money to go to Washington, of course. Now, this split between Andrew Jackson's supporters and his opponents, between those who celebrated at his inaugural and those who were revolted at the behavior of the celebrants, defines the political, social, and cultural world of the years between 1828 and 1840 in America, almost in a shorthand form. Because whether you approved or disapproved of that wild scene at Andrew Jackson's inauguration on March 4, 1829, well, that was probably an indication of how you felt on such other, more important, more basic issues, such as temperance, or the Bank of the United States, or the tariff, or immigration, or public schools, Indian rights, on federal spending, on canals and roads and railroads, what we know as internal improvements slavery, on women's rights, 
on the issue of how centralized the central government should be, the federal government should be, on taxes, and a host of other issues. It determined, in short, whether you were a Democrat and an Andrew Jackson supporter, or what would be by the early 30s, early 1830s, called a Whig and an opponent of Andrew Jackson. The rivalry between the Democratic and Whig parties defined this era and took on a life of its own even after Andrew Jackson left office in 1837, becoming America's main political division until the mid-1850s. And so it's important to discuss the Democratic Party and the Whig Party and the kinds of people who belong to them in order to understand this era. Now, it's important to note that in the 1830s, uh, political parties were, were very important to individuals. Uh, I would almost, I, I almost analogize them to like sports teams today. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of party loyalty. High voter turnouts, there were parades during campaigns, there was passionate oratory and loyalty. Uh, uh, and I think a lot of this can be tied, this rise of party fervor, uh, can be tied to the rise of universal white male suffrage, which is taking place during this time. And while the older Federalist and Democratic Republican parties which we talked about, uh, while those were loosely structured, the Demo Democratic and Whig parties of the 1830s and onward were organized down to the local precinct level with elaborate patronage systems. There's no civil service at this point. So there's an incentive to passionately support your party when you have job possibilities if it wins the election. But more than personal job considerations uh, motivated supporters of the Democratic and Whig parties. Uh, their supporters had different views of the way America should operate, the way it should be organized, the way it should be. be. It, should, it should be. Differing views of the governing rules in social and economic life, the way people should behave, the way government should act, the way money should be made. In many ways, they were carrying on the arguments between Federalists and Democratic Republicans, with the Whigs uh, uh, representing the updated version of the Federalist Party, uh, and the Democrats the updated version of the Democrat-Republican Party. And even after the Whig Party had died, had dissolved in the mid-1850s, as we'll see, it passed on some of the same arguments, many of the same arguments, to its successor, the Republican Party, which continued arguing with the Democratic Party uh, through the Civil War, the rest of the 19th century, and into the 20th century. And there are echoes of these arguments even today. So let's examine these two parties, how they started, what they stood for, what they stood against, who believed in them, who belonged to them, and why. We'll start with the Democrats. Now, we've already discussed how Martin Van Buren formed the modern Democratic Party in the 1820s with Andrew Jackson as its public symbol. The Democratic Party, as I discussed, was formed to protect slavery and to keep it out of the national political argument where it could only cause trouble. But the Democratic Party was formed more broadly to preserve the Union. The Union, the United States, to Democrats, was sacred. The Democratic Party may have been friendly to slavery, but it drew the line sharply 
when the question of secession from the Union, or disunion, arose. And we'll see this a little later when we discuss Andrew Jackson's uh, decisive response to South Carolina's attempt to nullify a federal law in 1832. Now, the Democratic Party's philosophy uh, is uh, one that I've also alluded to. In the tradition of Thomas Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans, 1830s-style Jacksonian Democrats believed in a small central government, in states' rights, in equality of opportunity for white males, and low taxes and government expenses. The Jacksonian Democratic Party was not a meddlesome party in the sense that it believed that one's personal life and one's social arrangements, uh, whether or not one drank beer, uh, whether or not one sent their children to parochial schools or to no school at all, uh, whether one was a Catholic or a Protestant, whether or not one held slaves, that these questions were private and of no concern to the government or anyone else. Democrats hated what they called privilege, which did not necessarily mean that they hated people who were rich per se. Andrew Jackson himself was rich. Uh, But they hated those who became rich the wrong way, without hard work, but through speculation or financial machinations, financial dealings, manipulating money, utilizing special privilege, who you knew rather than what you knew. And this is why Andrew Jackson, as we will see, hated the Bank of the United States so much. He felt that bank stockholders made money through special interest. Again, through knowing somebody, through connections, not through honest effort. On the occasion of Andrew Jackson's 1832 message to Congress, uh, vetoing the National Bank Recharter and essentially destroying it, He expressed these sentiments, as well as the Democratic Party view of what equality meant. Jackson said, while distinctions in society will always exist, equality of talents, of education, or of wealth cannot be produced by human institutions. When the laws undertake to add to those natural and just advantages artificial distinctions, he drew the line. Many of our rich men, Jackson continued, have not been content with equal protection and equal benefits, but have besought us to make them richer by act of Congress. This, then, was Andrew Jackson's and the Democratic Party's view of equality in American society. Different talents, yes, and often different personal outcomes, personal life outcomes, but strict equality before the law and no special advantages Uh, to anyone conferred by the law. So those were the Democrats. Now the Whigs. Now the Whig Party was founded in the uh, early 1830s by political foes of Andrew Jackson, who felt that he was a dictator, who hated him. The party, however, stood for more than just uh, anti-Jackson anger. Whigs, as I mentioned earlier, were the heirs of the Federalist Party, and retained their orientation, the Federalist orientation, towards a strong central government uh, and a pro-business mentality. The Whig version of America was one in which government helped Americans get rich, 
both large corporations and industrious individuals. Now, these group, this group of industrious individuals, this idea of industry, uh, being industrious, uh, is significant for the Whigs because uh, this was the key to their popular appeal, uh, one that rivaled the more openly egalitarian Democrats. Because the Whigs embodied the rags-to-riches idea, or the rags-to-riches myth, as some would have it, that is such a strong theme in American history and culture that is so resonant. This is the idea that any man, if he works hard enough, is industrious enough, and self-sacrificing enough can become rich. Now, we'll see echoes of this in the so-called free labor idea of the Republican Party, which we will be studying in a few weeks. Now, we also see the rags-to-riches Whig idea itself echoing what is known as the Protestant ethic, which also is part of American culture. Uh, the idea that, uh, 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 that, uh, that success can come from hard work and that hard work and success is blessed by God. The Protestant ethic is that hard work-oriented, if we call it that, a hard work-oriented religious ethic that sprang from Calvinism, sprang from the Puritans, uh, but soon lost its religious association and became part of the secular, meaning non-religious, American culture. Americans felt very strongly about this rags-to-riches myth, and the Whig Party attached itself to it. Now, this doesn't always mean rags to riches. It could also be rags to respectability or rags to middle class status. And the Whig Party was the party most closely associated with the American middle class, which was developing around this time. And as a middle class party, the Whig Party had the lack of respect for failure in the race of life. Uh, 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 the idea that if you were poor, uh, it, was, it was basically your own fault, that you weren't working hard enough, that you were indolent, that you weren't industrious. While both the Whig Party and the Democratic Party believed in bettering one's condition, the Whig Party was much harder on those who didn't make it than the Democratic Party. Whigs were much less forgiving of human weakness. This is one of the major differences between the parties. Now, the major Whig leader was Henry Clay, the man who ran for the presidency three times and lost. He was from Kentucky, a slaveholder but uncomfortable with slavery, and was known as the Great Compromiser. Clay was more oriented towards preserving the Union than to actual political principles, so often he was called a man of no principle. But it's fair to say that Henry Clay saved the Union, both in 1820 and 1850, with his compromises. So uh, uh, we've already talked about the Compromise of 1820, the Missouri Compromise that, uh, that Clay helped broker, uh, and he would uh, uh, broker another compromise to save the Union, at least temporarily, in 1850, and I'll be talking about that a little later down the road. And Clay did, in fact, have principles, whatever his opponents may have said. His Whig principles in the uh, political and economic sphere were embodied in what was called the American system. Now, Henry Clay's American system philosophy was uh, that 
government aid to business would eventually uh, aid the entire country. Uh, uh, what we would call today uh, trickle-down economics. And this is echoed today by Republicans who say that the, if the entire economy grows, it doesn't necessarily matter if certain individuals make a lot of money if it trickles down to help the average middle class or working class person. Now, the American system of Henry Clay featured, first, a protective tariff to help uh, the growing young American industry, uh, 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 helping the idea that America should be independent economically of Great Britain. Two, a system of internal improvements that were aided by the government. Uh, uh, federal aid to roads and canals and railroads, again, to help industry grow. And finally, a national bank, which was already in effect or already in existence by the 1830s, but which Jackson wanted to kill. For Clay and the Whigs, the national bank was a good institution. It regulated the nation's economy, and it provided credit to business. Now, all of these things, uh, 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 the protective tariff, uh, federal aid to internal improvements, the national bank, all of this, the Democrats and Andrew Jackson were against. Now, in the area of culture, Whigs, unlike Democrats, believed in intervening, or interfering, as Democrats might say, in the private lives of Americans. Whigs believed in moral uplift to better the lives of Americans. And so, Whigs, much more than Democrats, embraced anti-slavery, temperance, women's rights, often Indian rights, and general, generally the idea of personal respectability, middle-class respectability. So now I hope you can see that the appalled man, the revolted man reading the newspaper account of Andrew Jackson's inaugural day riot at the White House was probably a Whig or an incipient one. Whigs believed that men should not behave that way, that it was not proper, that it was not respectable. Democrats, on the other hand, said the Whigs should just butt out. Whigs felt that man was perfectible and that their role was to help him towards perfection. There's a link here to the great Protestant revival movements of this time, what, what is known as the Second Great Awakening, Protestant revival movements in the 19, 1820s and 1830s. Uh, and Whigs were a heavily Protestant party. But Democrats argued that man was not perfectible, but he was who he was, and we should accept life as it is. Some historians argue this was a more Catholic perspective, uh, 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 that the, the Whigs not only were predominantly Protestant, but had a Protestant perspective in the sense that they felt that man was per per perfectible, uh, while the Catholics, who were of course Protestant in the South, but largely Catholic in the North, uh, uh, had a perspective uh, uh, that man was who he was, that life was what it was, that there would perhaps be rewards in the hereafter, but life was w the way it was, uh, and pretty much unchangeable on Earth, and some have linked that to a more Catholic perspective. So this, too, is, I think, a great, uh, a great difference between the Whig and Democratic parties. For Whigs, 
the liberty or the freedom to rise to the highest position that your abilities would take you was paramount. And more paramount than the Democratic Party idea of equality. Whigs wanted people to become unequal, wanted them to have the liberty to become unequal. And if this meant the government would help the more deserving, the more industrious, that word again, uh, among them, then so be it. So while Whigs celebrated inequality of achievement as a reward for uh, those who were more deserving, Democrats looked upon it with suspicion, looking for signs of unfair advantage. So, Democrats and Whigs had sharp differences over the idea of equality, over the idea of freedom or liberty, and of the perfectibility of human beings, as well as over more prosaic questions of federal power, states' rights, tariffs, banks, and taxes. And I think the best way to illustrate the differences between Democrats and Whigs uh, is this series of opposite words and phrases that I put together uh, that I'm just going to read to you, and I think you'll get an idea of how different these parties were. I don't think there was ever a time in American history where there was more stark differences between the political parties than at this time. Whigs believed in aspiration. Democrats fear and resentment. In other words, Whigs had sort of a positive, sunnier view, I think, of, of, of humanity. Uh, 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 Democrats were just more, uh, more suspicious. Whigs wanted more government. Democrats wanted less. Whigs were oriented towards commerce and business. Democrats emphasized uh, uh, their opposition to special privilege. It wasn't that they were necessarily against business per se, but they were against any sort of unfair advantages in business, or what they saw as unfair advantages. Whigs were overtly and unapologetically materialist. Democrats were anti-materialist. Whigs believed in centralized government. Democrats believed in decentralized government. In the Whig Party, there was an emphasis on order, on material progress, and on moral improvement. In the Democratic Party, the emphasis was on trickery and the deceit of man, that people could not be trusted. Whigs wanted easy credit, paper money, which wasn't backed by gold, inflation, basically. While Democrats were hard money men, they believed that only money should be issued that was backed by gold, that could actually be paid off. Whigs were more cosmopolitan, and in the sense I mean that they were, uh, they were probably uh, more educated, I would say. If you looked at the level of education, Whigs were somewhat more educated than, uh, than Democrats. Uh, Democrats were more uh, a populist and uh, uh, a plebeian. They were the party of the people. <coughs> Whigs were in favor of government aid to internal improvements, as I mentioned before. Uh, uh, Democrats uh, did not want spending on internal improvements by the government. If you wanted to build a canal, or you wanted to build a railroad, well, build it by yourself. Don't, uh, don't ask the government for help. Whigs favored the National Bank of the United States. Democrats hated the National Bank of the United States, especially, uh, uh, especially Andrew Jackson. Whigs believed in a high tariff. 
and, of course, Democrats in a lower tariff and free trade. As I mentioned before, the Whig outlook, I think, to a large extent, was a Protestant outlook in terms of uplifting and perfecting people. Uh, uh, the Democratic outlook was a Catholic outlook, which was more accepting of the way things were. In terms of culture, personal lifestyle, Whigs were interventionists. Democrats wanted to be left alone, basically. And Whigs were taxers and spenders, while Democrats believed in low taxes. And above all, perhaps to sum it all up, talking about these ideas of equality and freedom that, uh, that run as a, as a theme throughout this course, uh, if Whigs were asked, what is more important to you, liberty or equality? And you have to choose one, and you can't go into a big explanation. Just choose one or the other. They would choose liberty. If Democrats were asked the same question, they would probably choose equality. And perhaps that is the most important difference, uh, the sum summarizing difference, uh, uh, organizing difference between them. So there are vast differences in the uh, uh, Democratic and Whig uh, worldview uh, and culture. And in keeping with these differences, there are differences in the Democratic and Whig constituencies, the people who belong or support the Democratic and Whig party. Now, the Democratic constituency was composed of the following elements. Southern planters, you know, the gone with the wind types. Southern yeomen, the poor uh, uh, Southerners who are, who are uh, self-sufficient self farmers living in non-slaveholding areas. Urban workers in the north as the cities begin to grow. Smaller urban businessmen who are being squeezed out of business by burgeoning uh, uh, industrial capitalism. The people who uh, may have had their own small businesses in, the, uh, you know, in 1815, but by 1835 were, were being squeezed by larger businesses. So they were afraid. Northern farmers who were more marginal to the market, meaning more self-sufficient farmers, poorer farmers. Northern businessmen who had ties, economic ties to the South. Uh, uh, you know, if you're a cotton businessman, uh, 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 if you're a cotton grower in the South, uh, you may get your money and your financing from a northern bank. You may trade your cotton through a, norm, a northern middleman or a northern merchant. So there are many northern merchants that have strong economic ties to the south, uh, uh, and they are, uh, they are often Democrats. Uh, 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 you know, when the Republicans in the 1850s wanted to say something terrible or, or insulting about the Democrats, they would say the Democrats are controlled by the lords of the lash and the lords of the loom. What they meant by that, the lords of the lash is pretty clear, that those are the planters, those are the slaveholders. But the lords of the loom, those are the uh, northern manufacturers, the cotton manufacturers, the cotton merchants, the cotton bankers uh, with the economic ties to the south. So they're Democrats also. Other parts, important parts of the Democratic constituency are, are Catholics, uh, Irish Catholics, Germans Catholics, especially in the 1840s as American immigration from, uh, from Ireland and Germany spikes up. And immigrants in general uh, were, were much more oriented towards the Democratic Party than the Whig Party. Now, the Whig constituency, who belonged to the Whigs? Well, uh, small entrepreneurs in the South, small businessmen in the South, 
uh, uh, what, what existed of the southern urban middle class. You don't have a lot uh, in the way of the middle class in the south. That's one of the problems with their society, as we will see. Uh, uh, but whatever, you know, what, what, what middle class there was uh, in, in, in the south and, and what urban middle class there was in the south uh, are probably Whigs. Uh, northern small businessmen. But businessmen who are becoming more successful rather than less successful. The less successful ones are Democrats. The more successful ones are Whigs. Uh, Market-oriented northern farmers. Uh, uh, remember I mentioned uh, uh, farmers who are less oriented towards the market are Democrats. The more into the market you get, probably the more Whig you get if you're a northern farmer. Uh, as to be expected, large northern uh, business, commercial, and industrial interests... Uh, uh, except the ones that had, uh, uh, you know, uh, close ties economically to the South. Again, as you would expect, the respectable middle class uh, of the North. Uh, employees, often, of the larger businesses in the North, and the merchants, and the banks, and the commercial firms. The middle people, the middle managers, so to speak. They're the Whigs. Uh, some native-born workers uh, 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 in, the, uh, uh, in, in the urban North, uh, 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 were also Whigs, uh, uh, largely because they had become nativists uh, uh, and they were very suspicious of the immigrants, especially the Catholic immigrants, uh, who were Democrats. And uh, there's, this, uh, there's this saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, uh, or a negative reference, uh, uh, in the sense that uh, uh, if, uh, uh, if you identify yourself negatively to another group, if you hate another group, you probably will align with the political party that, that, is, uh, that is against them. So if your enemy is a Democrat, you're probably going to be a Whig. Or the person that you feel is your enemy uh, uh, is a Democrat, well, you'll probably be a Whig. So you do have northern workers who uh, are Protestants, uh, uh, who are probably, you know, being de-skilled and thrown out of jobs and have difficult economic circumstances themselves, but are not going to vote for the Democrats because that's the party of the Catholics. That's the party of the immigrants. And largely, the Whig constituency is a Protestant, native-born constituency. Now, there's always going to be some overlap and some contradiction, but generally I think this is descriptive of the differences between uh, the constituencies of the uh, Democrats and the Whigs. But it's not a foolproof, uh, a foolproof formula. Uh, uh, and as an example, let's take Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was born to a yeoman father in the South in Kentucky, but he didn't become a Democrat. He became a Whig and later, of course, a Republican. His great rival, the senator from Illinois, Stephen Douglas, we'll have more to say about him later in the course, he was born in Vermont, a Vermont Yankee growing up in the North. Well, he became a Democrat and not a Whig or a Republican. So the formula is not always foolproof. Now, let's look at the, how the rivalries between the Democrats and the Whigs played out in some of the uh, more notable controversies of Jacksonian America. First, the nullification crisis. In 1828, a tariff was passed by Congress that hurt the South by raising tariffs and raising prices on uh, uh, European and northern manufactured goods that the South, a predominantly agricultural society, had to import, so they were uh, paying higher prices. Now, South Carolina claimed the right to veto or nullify this federal tariff law in 1832 through its great spokesman, the great states' rights spokesman, John C. Calhoun, who was the vice president under Jackson and a longtime senator. South Carolina 
relied for this idea of nullification or vetoing uh, a federal law, that the union was merely a compact between the states. This argument, of course, would be again made by the South during the secession crisis of 1860 and 1861. Now, Andrew Jackson, as one might expect from a Southern Democrat, uh, didn't like the tariff very much himself. But as a unionist, he drew the line at a state nullification of a federal law. And this was illustrated uh, uh, in, in 1830 at a uh, dinner that, uh, that Jackson attended with his rival, uh, John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, the nullification and states' rights advocate. Uh, and in those days, uh, people would uh, raise toasts at these dinners, but they were more than toasts. They were almost like political slogans. So in a famous, the famous night of the dueling toasts, uh, uh, first Calhoun gets up and offers a toast to our union, next to our liberties, most dear. And then Jackson gets up and offers his toast, our federal union, it must be preserved. In other words, that's more important than anything. And in his proclamation to the people of South Carolina in 1832, Jackson said just that. He explicitly rejected the compact theory of the Constitution that South Carolina and Calhoun was putting forth. He said that the people of the United States, and not the states themselves, made the Constitution. States were only an administrative device, the conduit through which the people could create the Constitution. The Union, Andrew Jackson told South Carolina and John C. Calhoun, was inviolate. It could not be broken up. And while Jackson offered South Carolina a way out uh, uh, with a tariff bill that gradually lowered uh, 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 some rates beginning in 1833, Jackson also, in typical fashion, threatened to march into South Carolina at the head of an army and hang any citizen who defied that tariff law. And he even got authority from Congress to do this in the force bill. And he would unquestionably have done it, too. After some face-saving gestures, South Carolina backed down. But once again, the question of a state's right to nullify a federal law, or even secede, was not finally decided. It didn't disappear entirely, it just went underground, where, as we know, it would raise its head again in 1860. Now, the nullification crisis showed Andrew Jackson, in one sense, acting more like a Whig than a Democrat, defending a tariff, a federal tariff, albeit one that he did not believe in, and upholding centralized federal power over states' rights. But the other major crisis in uh, the Jackson administration, the national bank crisis, shows him more in character as a doctrinaire Democrat. Andrew Jackson hated the Bank of the United States, which he referred to as the monster. The National Bank, all banks, but especially the National Bank, represented unfair privilege and ill-gotten gains of a select few to Andrew Jackson. While Whigs like Henry Clay uh, uh, admitted that National Bank of the United States uh, stockholders got rich, they, Whigs, argued in true trickle-down fashion that by expanding credit and by helping business, 
the Bank of the United States helped the nation at large, helped the people of the United States at large. But Andrew Jackson and the Democrats would have none of this. They viewed banks as fueling a speculative boom that would cause inflation. They believed only in borrowing money based on gold, hard money. One would wonder what they would say today uh, uh, during our financial crisis. Probably, I told you so. In 1832, Jackson successfully ran for re-election against Henry Clay on an explicit program of killing the National Bank. And in 1833, armed with this mandate, uh, and it was a mandate because Henry Clay was the biggest National Bank supporter, Jackson killed the bank when it came up for recharter by taking federal monies out of the Bank of the United States and depositing them in state banks, what were known as pet banks, which Andrew Jackson didn't like very much either, but uh, liked more than the Bank of the United States. And in typical Andrew Jackson fashion, uh, uh, he did this in the face of Congress, which had actually rechartered the National Bank. But Jackson got what he wanted, as he usually did. With the Bank of the United States gone, it would take until the 20th century and the Federal Reserve System uh, to have any central control over uh, the national banking or monetary system. So here we have the classic example, uh, uh, an illustration, of the clashing Democratic and Whig views of how the economy should be run. We can see this through the, uh, uh, the argument over the national bank. Now, in 1837, Andrew Jackson left office after eight years, giving way to his hand-picked successor, Martin Van Buren. And Jackson left having accomplished his goals, Democratic Party goals. He had balanced the budget. There was no significant national debt. He had lowered government spending. But the one thing Andrew Jackson could not do was to stem a nationwide lust to make money a money-making culture that I talked about last time. Investing, financing, speculating. Americans in the 1830s were determined to get ahead, to rise up. And it's ironic that in a decade in which Andrew Jackson and the Democrats won most of the battles, destroying the Bank of the United States, successfully vetoing federal aid to internal improvements, uh, the Maysville Road veto of 1830, which we read uh, uh, for today, uh, is a good example of, of, of how Jackson was able to veto federal aid to roads and canals and railroads. Uh, also, uh, lowering uh, the tariff, uh, beating back Clay's uh, uh, American plan, uh, American system, uh, uh, which never passed. Uh, 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 tariffs started to go down. Uh, instead of up, the National Bank, the Bank of the U.S. was destroyed. Uh, federal aid to internal improvements was largely beaten back by the Democrats. Uh, uh, and, of course, the Democrats won the presidential election in 1828, 1832, and with Martin Van Buren in 1836. So, in a decade where Andrew Jackson and the Democrats seemed to win most of the battles, Whigs, or Whig attitudes towards speculation, towards aggressive investment and business development, the Whigs may have won the war, so to speak. The reckoning came right after the luckless Martin Van Buren took over in the panic of 1837. 
Now, there was a tremendous amount of speculation, as I mentioned in America during this time, uh, tied to cotton prices, not tied to housing values, but in this case tied to cotton prices, an inflationary boom, similar uh, to the one that we just had. And then when cotton prices fell, instead of housing prices falling, cotton prices fell uh, because Great Britain lowered its demand uh, for cotton. Uh, there was no way for borrowers to repay their loans because they assumed that they would be able to pay their loans out of rising cotton prices. Again, the analogy to rising uh, housing prices. And there was a resulting spiral in 1837 of business collapse. Uh, banks uh, were forced to suspend hard money payments for uh, uh, now worthless paper, uh, uh, backed, by, uh, backed by nothing, uh, not backed by gold. Again, sound very familiar. Unemployment went up between 1837 and 1841. And uh, America didn't pull out of this depression, really, uh, until the early 1840s. Now. Whigs, of course, blamed the Panic of 1837 and the resulting Depression on Andrew Jackson's destruction of the Bank of the United States. Whigs argued it would have regulated the economy. Democrats blamed the Panic of 1837 and the resulting Depression on rampant speculation and Whigs and their easy credit and paper money. Again, uh, if all this sounds familiar, if you just substitute housing prices for cotton, uh, we've been here before. You know, we've been where we are today before. Now, as the party uh, in power when the panic occurred, it was the Democrats who were blamed by uh, the American people uh, for this uh, depression, which is, of course, bad news for Republicans uh, 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 this year. See, all of this should sound familiar. If anybody says that history doesn't matter, well, this is my answer. This has all happened before. Now, in the 1840s election, the 1840 uh, presidential election, in a complete role reversal, the Democrats, who were ostensibly the party of the people, the party of Andrew Jackson, this must have driven Andrew Jackson crazy, were portrayed by gleeful Whigs in the context of the panic and the depression uh, which was going on during this time, were portrayed by Whigs as elitists. While the Whig candidate, uh, 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 the old Indian fighter and hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe, William Henry Harrison, the Whig sold himself as a populist, almost as a Democrat. A hard cider, log cabin uh, a man who had been uh, born into poverty and, 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 uh, and, and, as I said, born into a log cabin. Although in reality, William Henry Harrison, the Whig, had been born on a Virginia plantation and drank little. Now, the 1840 presidential election was the first modern campaign with slogans, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, advertising, rallies, uh, the involvement of what was then known, we, we now would call the media, uh, an act of campaigning. And having successfully portrayed the Democrat Martin Van Buren as an elitist, as I, as, as I mentioned, uh, Andrew Jackson must have been losing his mind over this, the Whig Party won their first presidential election in 1840, only to have the 68-year-old William Henry Harrison die after a month in office, uh, after he gave a two-hour inaugural speech uh, uh, on a blustery, windy uh, inauguration day. He caught pneumonia and died, uh, uh, which shows that you can uh, maybe perhaps fool with American politics, but you can't fool with Mother Nature. And Harrison's death was a fitting end, I think, to a tumultuous 12-year period. 
Now, the rivalry between the Democrats and the Whigs uh, carried over into other venues besides the tariff, the bank, internal improvements, temperance. As Americans pushed west, new questions began to divide Democrats and Whigs. How far should America expand geographically? What kind of societies would be established? What should be done with Indians? And what should be done with slaves and slavery in these new territorial areas? Next time, we'll see how Whigs and Democrats and Americans began to try to answer these questions. Not in the halls of Congress or in the White House, where we spent most of our time today, but on the cutting edge of the American Republic, the frontier, the West. And we'll do that on Wednesday.